Welcome to OLWJ Captivation, the podcast featuring boundless superstars and special guests who will provide information on achieving maximum success. I see boundless as not allowing the, you know, things that get in the way, the roadblocks to stop you. You see it and you go, you know what? This is a challenge. And a challenge doesn't mean I'm going to stop. I'm going to figure out how to get through this, how to move forward. In fact, I kind of couple boundless with resiliency. Special episodes of the podcast will center around concepts related to financial wellness. For everyone deserves a shot at financial freedom. Dollar cost averaging, it allows somebody to systematically invest whether the market is doing, you know, the, the market is up, the market is down, okay? And notice I, I didn't say uh, market good, market bad. I just said if the market is up or the market is down. There is no such thing as good or bad. It's just the market. And here's the thing. When somebody gets that education, right, where when we sit down with them and we're able to explain to that, they don't get scared by the ups or the downs. Thank you for making the decision to tune in to OLWJ Captivation. I am Otis Lewis Wilson Jr. For anyone that might be trying to figure it out, the letters in the title of the podcast represent my name. To learn more about me, visit the website at www.olwjboundless.com. Here, you can also read my blog. Follow me on Instagram at O underscore Wilson underscore Jr. Follow me on Twitter at OLWJ Boundless. Also, you can subscribe to the podcast mailing list. Again, the website address is www.olwjboundless.com. On this episode of OLWJ Captivation, I am reaching back into the Boundless Archives for a recorded interview that I did with Vincent Martin. Vincent has earned seven degrees, three undergraduate degrees, three masters, and a doctorate degree. Wow, check him out. He's a Paralympic champion. Vincent is also blind. So as a blind man, it's not that he could not do it, it's the fact that he did do it. Without further ado, here is that recorded interview with Vincent Martin right here on OLWJ Captivation. Unlimited enthusiasm toward the future. We have on this episode of Boundless a boundless superstar indeed, Vincent Martin. How are you, Vincent? Doing fine today. Fantastic, fantastic. And let's get things started by you first telling the audience about yourself. Uh, I am um, totally blind, but I wasn't born totally blind. I am one of the very, very many that have retinitis pigmentosa. But... I didn't know I had it at birth, and it really didn't manifest itself until well, I was 12 or 13. So I pretty much functioned like most sighted people did until I was around 12. 
I at that point I started to uh, develop nearsightedness like three out of the four children in my family and so I got glasses at 13 so I wore glasses but I was still 20-20 played multiple sports but around the age of 13 I like to say that's when puberty kicked in and all the other problems kicked in I started having slight vision problems at least I thought I did I could still do a number of things I played multiple sports I did really well in school but as school got started ninth, 10th grade I started having real problems I was a freshman on the baseball team, and I was, by the end of the freshman year, my uh, cousin who was playing center field ended up playing Division One football and basketball, was the center field, and I was in right field. And there was a pop fly two games before the end of the season, and I think that's the last time I saw baseball. It went up high, and I lost it in the clouds, and it landed near me, and I just lost it. And I was like, it's a nice bright day. Why did I miss that ball? Started having problems in practice over the next two weeks and quit playing baseball and continued playing football. Sophomore year, state championship football team, uh, state championship basketball team, quit playing. Step, stuck with football. Moved from my regular positions, played guard, tackle, linebacker, anything outside really had trouble seeing the ball because of the glare. I wouldn't wear my glasses because of the glare. So senior year, I was all-state football player and had offers. Turned those down and took an academic scholarship because I knew I didn't see well enough to move back to, to safety instead of linebacker, even though other folks thought I could see. I, you know, when you're playing with people, you know you're sort of faking it. I'm doing well, but things are sneaking up on me. So I took a half scholarship academic and went to Georgia Tech in 1982. And within a couple of weeks, all kinds of problems started vision-wise. Uh, literally having difficulty walking on campus. At that point, I did not know I was night blind. I was, I should say I had trouble seeing in the dark. And just having difficulty keeping up. It's the first time in my life truly trying to have trouble. I started to have trouble in class. And that's simply because the school was just ridiculously difficult. Georgia Tech is one of the hardest uh, schools in the world, one of the tops in engineering, period. So it was the second semester, second quarter, when I had problems in chemistry. I knew something was wrong. When you start doing acid-based titrations, I was getting like 60% error, while the other people in my lab were getting 5 and 10% error. And I had no idea why. So I had friends help me with the lab, and I got the right answer, but I was like, something's wrong here. And so after my second year, I transferred to another school, thinking I would get a break, and the problems continued. And I'll never forget this. This is 1987. I'm nearing the end of graduation. I'm getting two my first two undergraduate degrees together. And I was watching a basketball game in February 1987. The owner, the former owner of the Cleveland Cavaliers, Gordon Gunn, and some people may know him as the person that helped start their foundation fighting blindness for retinitis pigmentosa. He was doing a commercial with the great James Worthy about this disease where you gradually go blind. And I was sitting there watching the images on the screen and some of the things they were showing with the graphics, how it sort of closes in on you. And I just had this epiphany. And I don't remember if I locked the door in our apartment, but I remember running out of the apartment, headed to the library, and I tell kids, 
in the good old days of the 80s, we had these things called encyclopedias. They were really big red and blue books, and you had to really open them and look for stuff. You couldn't just look it up. And I remember vividly having five encyclopedias, looking at the uh, symptoms of retinitis pigmentosum. I had them all, and I had this big grin on my face because I was going blind and not crazy. This made sense. I didn't know it was going to be the beginning of a couple of rough years of you know, trauma related to that. But uh, what's interesting about it is I told a variety of people, including a friend that was in medical school, who didn't believe me. They were like, you diagnosed yourself. I'm like, this is what it is. Told my mother. She's the only one that did believe me. She called my dad, told my dad the next day, and he immediately just ran crazy. He was like, okay, we need to go to the doctor. We went to the first doctor, and that doctor said, you have a... Uh, some type of retinal problem, but you don't have retinitis pigmentosa. And um, we'll keep you on the list to look at every six months to see if there's a degradation. And it looked like Stargardt's disease. And they sent this paperwork, and I was at the end of graduation anyway, where you can get moved to the quote-unquote handicap role where you can register early. And I'm like, I am a senior. I register first anyway. But when I saw the report that came into the office, I freaked out in the counseling center. I was like, whoa, that's worse than he said. And I, just looking at the numbers, I was like, I have no peripheral vision in my left eye. I'm 2,200 in the left. I'm 20, I have all these scotomas. I'm like, whoa. So I ran to Emory University, and the person that took a look at me was a, a teaching professor, ophthalmologist. And he walked in after doing all the exams that day, and he told my dad, your son has advanced retinitis pigmentosa, and how is he getting around? And my dad told him, he drove here. He's the safest driver of my four kids. <laughs> and I was like, whoa. And then when you took a really good look at everything, he said, oh, I see what he's doing. And then basically, I've been looking around the scotomas and guessing and glancing and doing all kinds of things. So all the things that are considered dangerous, really, over the years, I have been, quote, unquote, making myself into a better blind person by acting like I could see because I was literally creating ways in my brain of quote-unquote seeing and later on in one of my fields of work we we got into the cognitive psych part of it you find out really that is actually how people actually do see we don't see with our eyes we see with our brain we get the image and then your brain has to be able to process it but that was the end of my end of the beginning of my life because i went from having an engineering job offer in 1987 to this was before ADA being quote unquote let go as a new engineering hire before I even got the job because they didn't need a blind engineer and there was no requirements. Right. Oh, so yeah, and at the exact same time, I'm 20, 20, 20, 30, and my vision starts to drop like crazy. I literally went from 20, 30 to then 26 in a couple of months, and the next year, or by 2020, uh, by 1989 when I actually did graduate I went back and got some additional work to prepare to hopefully change fields I was legally blind <laughs> that's how much it dropped that quickly and you can imagine being able to drive in 1987 and 1988 1989 now your career's gone uh, your, your, your vision's going and most of all the person that you thought you were going to be with the rest of your life your fiance is gone because they don't believe you either so that's when the rock bottom was hitting. But I still consider that to be the greatest part of my life because in 89, when I 
first went into the rehab counselor's office, I met this phenomenal psychiatrist. And I like to say it's the best thing ever happened to me because I got to deal with all the crap from childhood at the age of 23. And I've considered myself since June of 89 to be okay. I have, I like to say I haven't had a bad day since 89. I only have two types of days, good day and better. I wake up, it's a good day. It only gets better because I dealt with everything in 1989. And that's when my life changed over from being sighted to being a person that was going to function without vision. As we continued with the interview, Vincent explained how he used assistive technology to plan for his education and career as a blind individual. And then within a couple of months, I found out that field was called rehabilitation engineering. So I like to say I was fortunate I had the right training with textile engineering degree and an industrial and systems engineering degree with human factors emphasis. I had the perfect name for a person going blind. And so by dealing with the, the ramification of losing my vision, having the right technical background, I was prepared to get ready to be blind. And I say prepared because... You know, late 80s, you're uh, going blind. There weren't but so many types of jobs blind people could do or even had an opportunity to do. So I literally uh, started volunteering and training. And the next thing I know, people were asking me to train them. And I started training people. I ended up working in rehabilitation, the whole shebang. And then right in the middle of all this, I found out about, because I was in the gym working out, that there was something called Association of Blind Athletes. And we tried to get a chapter here in Atlanta. And it fizzled out. And in 2003, when I saw the person that tried to start at another camp, I said, hey, thank you. Uh, I'm the result of you starting that, trying to start that chapter. We didn't get a chapter, but I'm going into the fourth para, uh, third Paralympics. So by being exposed to what blind people are capable of doing, by having the backing of a family and friends that really got behind me and thought that I could still do anything, I was able to start building a different life. I don't say rebuild because it's a different life and I still tell people it's much more rewarding than the one I had before because I've made the most out of it. So I've, you know, continued over the years doing a variety of things, and we'll probably cover some of that during the podcast. But that's, I like to say, that's where I transitioned to working toward being the person that I am now. Well, let me ask you this. In terms of the adjusting to blindness and making the decisions that you made, how long of an adjustment period was that for you? I'll, I'll literally say from 87 when I found out exactly what it was to I'll say 1990, 91. 87 is a, you know, you get the elation of knowing what it is. You're terrorized. Your, your life changes. I went through a couple of hard years of really headed toward rock bottom. And then I hit rock bottom. I had the right backing from my family, the right psychiatry and it started to come up. But. I can literally say I saw myself coming up in fall of 89 when a friend of mine I hadn't seen in a couple of years, she was, um, had been in school with me, she had disappeared from school and I saw her in the, literally in the computer lab in 89 before I graduated last week and got her phone number. She had been in a car wreck and no one, that's why no one had seen her. She had, had been out of school for a year and a half and she was an Air Force veteran. and. Uh, just, you know, just got her phone number and we just started hanging out and talking and we just started doing things together. The first thing she picked me up in her new car, I got in and I had my folding cane and she asked me what it was. And I said, oh, it's my cane. I'm going blind. And this is the kind of person where she was like, OK, what's mm -hmm. great about it is her sister was a model 
and we always thought that you know she looked just as good as her sister did so i'd already gone through the part of being rejected by fiance trying to figure out what my life's going to be like now as a african-american male unemployed looking for employment and my friend shows him we ha- we start hanging out a whole lot people literally think we're dating but we're friends it made it different and difficult for folks to comprehend that we were just hanging out but it made me feel like a human again because i knew then that if i was going to have a life and date i wasn't going to be picking anybody up they're going to have to pick me up so making that leap to okay when i meet someone let them know because i was low vision then that i am this kind of person let you know right at the beginning that was uh, the part of me becoming you know the man i was before and so i figured by the time of 1991 you know at 91 i was really feeling great as a matter of fact i really knew i was fine in 91 when we were at her boyfriend's a condominium we were having a um party and she was we were sitting in this big chair together we were playing pictionaries and there was this other woman that, that i was interested in and later later on i tried to get her phone number and she was like what about the, the your girlfriend i was like who she said a woman you were sitting next to i said that's my friend she was reading to me because i can't see and i explained i was visually impaired i was like the guy sitting on the floor next to her that was her boyfriend <laughs> i was like whoa <laughs> i'm trying to get your digits right <laughs> you like, no 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 don't block me like that so we ended up dating right <laughs> But, you know, that, uh, that, that, you know, hey, no, 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 no. And I, I, later on, I said, we're going to have to, at times, we got to break up here. Uh, when we're around uh, and I'm trying to date, you need to move out of the way. So that's when I knew I was back to normal, headed back to normal. And my mother told me she knew I was headed back to normal then because my baby brother is my baby brother's birthday present. I asked for, I asked for a truck on my fourth birthday. And my mother gave me a baby brother on my birthday. So we have the same birthday. He is four years, three hours, and six minutes younger than me. And she said, here, he's your birthday present. Take care of him. So mom said, uh, I knew he was back to normal because he was back trying to ta- back to trying to take over his brother and run his brother's life. So he's back to normal. So that's when I knew I was back to normal because mom said he's back to trying to run his brother's life. And when we talk about getting back to normal, some remarkable things happened in regards to your education. Let's talk about that. Seven degrees. How did this all come about? I can then? safely say I didn't plan it. And parts of it were accidents. Parts were on purpose. And some just happened. And when I, when I go through it, you'll see literally, actually, it did make that much sense. And the thing I also tell my mentees and other folks, one of the reasons why I've been able to do that is because I use a little-known theory that the government uses, or at least your congressmen use, and other companies use. It's called other people's money. And since other people's money spends much better than yours, you can take advantage of it. I initially went to school to get one degree, and I had a half scholarship. When I changed to the other school, I had pretty much a full scholarship, but found out in my third year that I detested textile engineering. But... I wanted to do industrial engineering. I'm like, I have a scholarship. So I started taking similar and same classes. Some overlapped, and, st- and that's why I was going to stay in one extra year. By the time I finished, I ended up with two degrees, and I had the other degree pay for the other degree. So when I did finish, I had two degrees. 
So we've, we've got two. I barely paid anything on the first two. And that's when I was started doing things like the Paralympics or whatever. And then along the way, I quote unquote was doing some things in the field of economics and supply chain. And that got noticed by our wonderful government. So between 2003 and 2006, our federal government paid for my first master's degree and my PhD, and I owed them five years of working for them. So after that, I went to work for the government. So at that point, I had two undergrads, a master's and a PhD, and I'm working and doing a variety of things. And I started working as a research scientist and also working for one of our companies agencies with triple letters which is the one that paid for it so at that time I had <coughs> those degrees and I'm sitting here going hmm uh, while I'm working as a research scientist I get really interested in blind rehabilitation but blind research at that time Vesta decides hmm what am I going to do I'm really interested in engineering psychology or in human factors and here in the state of Georgia the only place that had an undergraduate degree was my old undergrad school, which was Southern Polytechnic. So I, while I'm working then, I went back and got a third undergraduate degree in engineering psychology. And so now I have three undergrads, and I'm sitting there thinking at that time, my boss at job at the job, he said, when your time is through with the government, what are you considering? He said, I'll be retiring in so many years. Would you like to do this? I'm like, yeah. And he goes like, well, you have to have, you know, a Ph.D. And at that time, they didn't know I had a Ph.D. because it was classified. And I also needed in a different area anyway. So I said, I'm going to get one in uh, something in the field of human-centered computing or engineering psychology. So I applied to Georgia Tech. And I get in, and I'm sitting there, sitting in a lab where there's dual degrees. We have computing and psychology in the same department, interactive computing and psychology. My advisor has dual appointments in both, so we have PhDs in engineering psychology, PhDs in human-centered computing. We have masters in HCI. We have folks in music theory, and the person sitting next to me is in human-centered computing, which I had not heard of at that time, and he told me to take the intro course. I took it and loved it. So I took that, and I'm right at that point. I'm taking, I'm getting a master's in human computer interaction. So right at that point, I'm doing this, and I decide, oh, I like that. And right about the time I'm finishing my master's, I apply then for the PhD program. So I'm working on my second, but I have another master's. So at this point, now I have two masters, three bachelors, and a PhD. And while I'm working on that, I quote unquote pretty much solve a lot of the problems I wanted to solve and decided I was going to move back in the industry. So halfway through that, I stopped. Instead of getting a PhD, I got a third master's in computer science with an emphasis in human-centered computing. And those last three were all paid for because I was a research assistant at the school. So I have seven degrees, and I basically paid for one. Didn't plan it, but and you can't do this unless you have money. So that's I I didn't plan it. Well, and you're you absolutely right about that. <laughs> that that is so true. But hey, when you can when you can use the system to advance, that is an awesome thing. What period of time was this over? And was this in the night? Oh, I guess what I would say what the mid nineties. When was this? School in nineteen eighty two. Then I did my second stint to grad school between two thousand three and two thousand six. And then the last bit was between 2010 and 2017. 
the technology and the whole entire aspect of attending school. And let's start from the very beginning as a blind uh, student for you. What was that like? <laughs> oh, you, you had to hit me with that one. So you know that's the problem, right? <laughs> yes, sir. That's, that's always yes, been a sir. problem if you have a visual problem in college. Well, I, I, as my brother says, the reason you keep having problems is you keep going where no man's gone before Captain Kirk. I, um, when I started to lose my vision at Southern Polytechnic, I became the first legally blind person to ever graduate from the school. So I was losing my vision right at the end, and we had to quote-unquote figure it out. And that was, was pretty much like very little technology, nothing that really exists. I found it myself by the end. So I literally had readers, the old, you know, way person would read stuff to you, and then you would write your notes down, or you would um, use a recorder. And so I had, and you'll, you'll appreciate this, I had two readers on campus, and there were these two really attractive black women. <laughs> you understand? <laughs> so yes, I, I they would yes, these I folks the last year always saw me on campus going between classes with these two really attractive black women that were reading for me. So they thought I was a player, but no, in actuality, they read for me. And I even told them, no, they, they, they were for this, they're reading for me, huh? They're reading for me. I just, they're reading for me. And so that's how I finished undergrad was at that point reading i was around 2150 2200 couldn't see the board i tried to use a telescope because of rp and the lighting that didn't work so i listened really well and i took notes and then i rewrote the notes every day and uh, as a matter of fact i rewrote the notes every day when i brought them into the lab my one of my readers it was sharon or fia they would read what i wrote and i wrote it with a black sharpie or it was a fine tip a fine tip fine tip black marker and they would read it then I would type it into the computer. Then we would print it out large print. And that's how I finished with a mag magnifying bar. That's how I finished the first time. By the time, you know, 2003 rolls around, things have changed dramatically. Uh, we don't have many books in electronic format, but since my stuff was being done through the federal government and the agency, they made everything you could imagine accessible. It was all text-based. But they literally did it all themselves. So I have, I can't say I've never had anything as good as I did going going to school between 2003 and 2006. Boy, I wish I had known hmm. that's how I was, that was going to be the best part. When I came back to school yes. in 2010, I um totally blind. And I didn't notice at the beginning because I had a big relationship with my professor. He had literally had some of his uh, students work with us over at the center for at the uh, uh, rehabilitation research center at the VA. And I'm sitting there, I'm having trouble at the beginning trying to get my books and stuff in an accessible format. I mean, it's a straight nightmare from the beginning. And it was this was like fall of 2010. By spring of 2011, having conversation with one of the people on campus, I realized I was the first totally blind person to go to Georgia Tech. I thought we'd had a person 84. They said, no, they were low vision. You're the first totally blind. And I, when I said this out loud, my advisor started laughing. <laughs> I was like, that's not funny. My baby brother, <laughs> told me he started laughing. I was like, Captain Kirk strikes again. I said, I didn't do this on purpose. You're an idiot. You, oh. Because <laughs> when I went back to Southern Poly, I, it was really work not, there. I was the first one totally blind person when I went back. I helped them, but there was nothing like this. 
and got because my work was right. in literally making statistics accessible in graphs in that nature because that's one of the major things that blind people have difficulty with if doing higher order mathematics and especially statistics after they have if they have to do research methods or something else because statistics is not regular math it's interpretation of data and there was very little and everybody had would want to take this use this program called SPSS with a statistical package for social sciences I had learned stats when it was cited when I had all these people talking to me about it in the early 2000 I would every semester on a blind math list I'm gonna have to take this class blah 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 and I have to use this program and I was like oh boy they're screwed I learned that when I was cited you need to really be able to see and and the graphs and uh oh <laughs> so I started doing it with sound and um, by the when I first started, if you didn't know how to use the R programming uh, language and a number of things, you could not get out. There are so many people that did not finish their undergrad degrees or they changed from something more technical over to something that's uh, quote unquote humanities based. As a matter of fact, the numbers are still this way. Blind people leave high school and go into college at the exact same rate as uh people that are not blind. They also go into STEM fields at the exam, exact same rate as people that are not blind, but after four years, it's dropped off dramatically. The number of people that finished is less than people that are cited. The number of people that change their major is dramatic, and the number that go to grad school is really minimal because literally they don't have access to the information in the format they need, whether it's Braille or tactile or something sound-based. And I am a big believer in Braille, but I also am a big believer from engineering of being able to do multimodal learning. Like, for example, I can use Braille readily. I use it to do higher order mathematics and a lot of statistics and also data, but I also am a very auditory learner. And we've proven that you there is nothing called a learning uh, style that's been proven in labs. You can be trained to learn in different modalities. Some of us are much more capable mine is because I learned over the years losing losing my vision and faking to use my eyes so I listen but uh, I can pick up a lot of data really quickly with sound and that's how we have to get a lot of data anyway in large doses all radio telescopes are done with sound um, and it, when you're looking <coughs> at a huge data set you can see changes in something with a it, with a graph with sound much better than you can with your eyes as a matter of fact they can play a big long graph and you can hear, all of a sudden you can hear a blip change with your ears as a matter of fact there's blind physicists that do this kind of stuff and everybody does it with a radio telescope so I was like doing it with sound and the, the lab I was in is called a sonification lab and they do assistive technology and they do a combination of multimodal and sound and a program that that was quote unquote designed in the, in the lab which is now readily available is called the sonification sandbox Back then in 2002, it was just getting started. But now you literally can take any data set and put it into that and sonify it. And in conjunction with SAS, the statistical company, they created a program, SAS did, called a graphical accelerator. You can take any sound right. data, data set and create a graph and literally use a keyboard and listen to it. You can go up and down, watch the changes or whatever else. And so by then, we had solved the problem. The only thing is being able to get the information out to people. And if you're using a combination of Braille and sound, you'd be amazed at what you can do because 
the thing with braille is i tell them this it's expensive oh like yes sir i mean a person a decent in a point brailler you know braille embosses eight to ten thousand bucks a braille display you know how yes, even, even <laughs> the, the, the cheaper it's all expensive and they take up space and this and that but when you can do both uh and there's something in uh psychology and, and uh learning theory we call it glanceability that's what sighted people can do they can take a quick look at a page and go oh there's something down here or there's a color change there with our with being blind you can't do that even if you have a wonderful braille map you still get 2d you have to put your hand down and you have to work your way and build the picture while a sighted person in a couple of quick glances but with sound you can do the glance and also if you have your hands you get the multi-multi part of it so i'm really big into doing a combination of braille and sound and i can take huge data sets in a lot of cases I can literally get the information quicker than somebody cited now. So that's mm -hmm. how I went into mm -hmm. it. And that's how I survived school <laughs> the third time. And I was, I will literally say, if you have the right school uh, and the person has the right information with the right school, you can get what you need out of college. The problem is there aren't many that really know how to do it. And many people that know how to get what they need. So for a listener out there, who might be struggling with the thought processes of going to school or might have reservations about going to school, what would you say to them? The first thing is, there is a way. Someone has done it before you. If someone has done it before you, that means you can do it. Someone has cleared the way already. You just have to be able to find the right path. And that's a matter of usually getting the information out. I mean, For someone who might be uncertain as to the career path that they want to pursue, what would you say to them? I'll tell them the same thing. I, I've got a, a number of mentees, some that are blind. The vast, Still, the majority of them are sighted. Uh, most people don't know what they want to do that are sighted. So, and if you're visually impaired or blind, don't consider yourself to be any different. You think you know what you want to do as well. Be willing to open up your eyes. Uh, like I said, I started out from five years old, wanting to be uh, go to Georgia Tech. At 13, I re realized I wanted to be an engineer. And over the years, I've done a number of things. I'm still an engineer. I do a combination of human factors, engineering, and accessibility, but I'm still an engineer. But I've added to it. As I find out more things, I add more to my toolbox. An example I give people, especially my um, undergrads that are in all schools all around the country, and the ones that especially go to Georgia Tech is I have a student, and this is her example. Her parents were Serbian refugees. They came here after the Balkans War in the uh, late uh, 1990s. She wanted to be a lawyer and work for the Hague, the World Court. And so she came to Georgia Tech as an undergrad to do the five-year program in public policy. We get a master's and then go to law school. And Georgia Tech is a school where everybody pretty much has to take the same thing at the beginning. Two semesters of calculus is really difficult. So even though she's a public policy major, she's taking the same stuff as everybody else is, science and math. Her roommate, she really gets involved in what her roommate's doing with her um, major at the end of her freshman year. So she changes to industrial and systems engineering. She takes her first Python programming class and she really loved that. And she realized, I like this more than anything. So she changes her major to computer science. 
and she really gets involved in that undergrad and she starts working with human computer interaction then brain computer interface and so she wants to do a combination of that and the master's program in georgia tech what she really wanted to do she really wanted to do more research in the area they didn't have anyone that could really mentor her in that so they said well we're going to send you somewhere else we want to turn you down and send you somewhere else and the next day she walks up to me and she's like vincent they're sending me to mit and she's in the fourth mm -hmm. year of her phd at mit she should probably finish next year she started out in public policy, wanted to be a lawyer, and now she's going to have a Ph.D. in computer science or MIT. Keep your mind open. Keep your eyes open. You never know where you're going to end up. Vincent, we can talk for a long time about your achievements, and we will address some of those in just a second. But I want to discuss the Paralympics. There are so many people who do not know anything about the Paralympics. Oh, boy. Let me tell you, the first thing they taught us, if you, if you reach the level of Paralympics, is the first thing they teach you is it's not the Special Olympics. And you're taught to tell people what the difference is between the Special Olympics and the Paralympics. So the Special Olympics is literally an organization where all the athletics are, quote-unquote, performed by anyone that has an intellectual disability past a certain load and a certain level on the chart. It's not competitive, and everyone gets to participate. Well, the Paralympics are the equivalent of the Olympics for people that are in six different categories of disabilities and is a direct result of World War II and rehabilitation of athletes in Europe initially. And it worked its way through uh, Europe to America. So we had the first games in 1960. Uh, by the time we had 1976, we had the Association of Blind Athletes getting started, and the first blind athletes were included there. And one of them was a friend of ours, the great Winford Haynes. He was on that first team. And it was still separate from the Olympics at that time. And the groups that are now involved in it are six. You have people that have um, multiple, they have mobility impairments, which are people that have something related to something lower extremity normally uh they cannot literally walk normally so they have levels of that like vision your low vision all the way down to total blind they can have an impairment where they cannot walk normally and it's usually a spinal cord injury to being in a wheelchair and also being in a wheelchair with severe spinal injuries where they cannot uh move certain parts all the way from their c2 down their neck down to some of the people in wheelchairs can get up and stand up and walk off if they have to but they have spinal problems we have people that have the, we'll just call it dwarfism, but it's an actual disease. And that is considered a disability. That is a category. We have people that are amputees. And so amputees is a category. And some of those can do some pretty amazing things now simply because of uh, uh, technology. So they're really, really getting to do some amazing things. We have people that have cerebral palsy. Cerebral palsy is considered one of the groups and the last one of the people that are blind and low vision so those six groups come together because they all have their own national organizations and and they come together every year for every two years or so for the world championships but they also come together every four years just like the olympics do under the paralympics and in 1988 there was uh, the initial part where they quote unquote were put under the same organization and in 2000 in Australia, the Paralympics and the Olympics formally 
merged. So if a company is going to put forth or a country or a city is going to put forth a bid, they have to put forth a bid to host the Olympics and the Paralympics. It's one together now. And because of that, the Olympics have gone, the, the USOC, which used to be the United States Olympic Committee, has now become the USPC, United States, uh, uh, USOC is now the United States Olympic and Paralympic Committee, all together as one. And we're all pretty much treated the same. And as a matter of fact, you appreciate this. It's changed so much that this year, the money that they're going to give for winning a medal for the Olympians is going to be equivalent for people that have disabilities. And that's the first time that's ever happened in the U.S. Fantastic. But, you know, Fantastic. We have, you know, we have our usual events that we participate in that people are cited in or, you know, people that, quote, unquote, have no disabilities. We, in many cases, participate in the same events with some type of modification. Like one of my favorite sports of all time has been wheelchair uh, track. I like to call it NASCAR. And there's nothing like <laughs> them having a crack up. <laughs> I mean, $5,000 racing chair, they're coming around. All of a sudden, somebody clips somebody, and they all go to flipping. And they're, they're wearing helmets, and they're strapped in. I'm like, that's dangerous. <laughs> but it, it's great to watch. But we, as uh, people that are have various disabilities, we do things on the track similarly but differently. People that have um, amputeeism. Or they have they have amputees. They run pretty much mostly the same events. And people that are blind, we do almost the same thing. But there's small changes because of the nature of how we generate energy. People that are in wheelchairs, if they're going to throw something, they throw the smaller implements. They'll throw 1K discus instead of 2K. They'll throw the small javelin, the ones that women normally throw. And also the amputees do the same amount. Blindness is unique because we throw regular size implements like normally, quote unquote, people that have no visual impairment do. We can generate the same amount of force. So we throw the full size discus, we throw the full javelin, we, we throw the full shot put. So you have some blind people, when you see some of the numbers they're putting out, they're starting to come pretty close to the same numbers that people that are sighted are getting. That's why people like Jim Mastro, who almost made the Olympic team, Trisha Zorn, who missed the U.S. swimming by 12 one-hundredths of a second. We have Marla Rungan, who actually was visually impaired, make the Olympic team twice legally blind. So, so we can do very similar things because we can generate the same amount of energy. Our issue comes to becomes how can you process the information? So I always tell people, if people only knew how fast Marla was actually running, because she's processing so much with that star girl in the middle, she couldn't see anything in front of us. She would watch ponytails of people in front of her. She knew this woman from serving because she had a ponytail. This woman, this woman has a certain gait here. In order to get around them, she has to gauge where that person might be and then how do I get around my blind spot at the same way. So we occasionally can reach Olympic level, and it's from different countries. You've had the guy from South Africa, Ostrapatoris, make the, the South African Olympic team on his uh, artificial legs. So mm -hmm. the Paralympics really are people that have disabilities that are competing just like everyone else, and you don't, we're just as competitive or more competitive as they are. So This is exciting stuff. These athletes are boundless, and in saying that, this man here is boundless.
tell the audience about your experiences and your wins? I'm um, happy. This is 25 years from the first time I was in the Paralympics. I was in the 1996 Games in Atlanta. I was in the 2000 Games in Australia. And I was in the 2004 Games in Athens. Uh, 1996, I did pentathlon, which is five events in one day. Um, as my brother said, you had to do the hardest thing, didn't you? I also <laughs> ran the open 100-meter uh, dash and the open uh, discus throw, and I also ran relays. But my real event was a pentathlon, and I trained two years for that, and you'll appreciate this. I was, we did all five in one day. At the end of the middle of the day, in the middle of the day, we have the 100-meter dash, and we had the 100-meter dash, and at the end of the 100-meter dash, I'm in third place. And I'm thinking, the Russian is the world record holder. I might have a shot at him. So I go, go back to the room. I get some food. I'm resting. And my coach comes to get me for the uh, evening event, the last two, the discus and the 1,500-meter run. And he comes up to me and says, you've been disqualified from the 100-meter dash. Hmm. What? He said, <laughs> you crossed the finish line before you got runner did. And that's a no-no. Anytime they go in front of you, they can say they're pulling you. In actuality, I had run with that guy for the first time. And when he pulled up at the line, I pulled up because I thought we were in finishing the race. He was really pulling up to make sure I went in front of him. So I went from third place to last. And he said, you've seen this happen to people before. Don't let it get you down. I was like, don't let it get me down. I got some people I can catch. So I went <laughs> out and I won the discus. And in the 1,500-meter run, I'm running. I know I'm in like sixth place i'm like i can't get a medal nowhere in the world i'm waving to my friends in the stand and my guy runner goes there's a german passing you and i said oh no he didn't and on the last lap i sprinted i don't know why i did it i pr'd was personal record in the 1500 meters by 29 seconds knowing i couldn't get a medal because he passed me and i was like oh you're not going to do that and i ended up in fifth place literally almost did get a medal after getting wiped out of one of my events and I was planning on retiring right then because I was going to go to grad school in 96 and my mother said I see you quote unquote achieved your medal you achieved your goal I said I didn't get a medal she said that wasn't your goal excuse me this is that wise mother I talk about she said your dad's <coughs> wearing the same jacket you're wearing your sister's wearing the same jacket your brother's proud of you again he's in the stand you got 200 people that are waving for you that was your goal to show them that you were okay. See, I already knew I was okay. She, she told me, but they didn't know you were okay and you were trying to prove it. That's why I was helping you. And I was like, well, I didn't have to try to be the greatest athlete in the world to prove that point. And she said, well, you did. They think you're great now. And I said, well, great. I can go to grad school. And she asked me, where's the next Paralympics? And I told Australia. She said, I'm going and it would behoove you to show up. <laughs> I'm afraid of mom still and she's passed away. So I know that the, the pentathlon beats the body down, and I'm trying to still make it. And in 2098, I found a, finally found a coach to throw the discus correctly. And by 2000, I'm at <sighs> nearing the top of the discus rings. I, quote, unquote, have trouble. My body's going to the dogs. I'm then almost 35. And I said, okay, I'm going to make the discus my event. And... I go to Australia. I've won my event for the USA. I'm probably the third best in the world at the discus. And I'm throwing. 
and I'm going to run the relays. I ended up getting a piece of metal off a of discus in my finger and it was swollen and you cannot throw a discus unless it comes off your finger correctly like a baseball. So I'm out there with my finger tape trying to throw a discus. So I can't win. I end up getting fifth place. But at least at that time, at least I've won a silver medal in the in the world championships in the the uh, in the uh, the Pan Am Games. I said, okay, I'm gonna quit. And I get home, and my coach says, so how'd you do? I said, I told him how well I did. He's like, okay, let's get ready for the next one. It was like that. <laughs> so I start working toward the next game. Then 2004, I'm definitely gonna make this my last game. As a matter of fact, at the games, I'll say. I was sitting there with a friend of mine. I was 39 and she was 35. And I said, you know, we'll only know in the future that we are a fraction of our former selves. And I said, I was talking to the young people on the team. One was 19 all the way up to 22. There were four of them. And it dawned on me that none of them were born before I had my first knee surgery. I said, that's it. I'm out of here. I'm playing with children. But before I go out, I'm going to try to win. And I knew I was going to try to win no matter what. They had combined my category, B1 and B2, in order to keep it going. There were not, not enough qualifiers in my category. I'm ranked number one in the world. Not enough people. So we would not have had an event unless I got combined with people that were B2, which are totally blind up to 2,600. So I'm really competing against people that can see. And I was like, okay. <laughs> so I gave it my best. I ended up being best in class, best in the world. But not a Paralympic champion because I, I'm not separated, but I did retire. So I've got international medals and I came close in the Paralympics. I'm considered best in class, but I'll still everybody, tell everybody I'm the champion of my own self because I've got mentees that are now on the Paralympic team. I've gotten other people involved in it. And as my mom said, it was never about you. It's about everybody else passing it on I'm, I'm really big into trying to get more people involved in it because the thing that i found out in 1995 when i first went to the olympic training center is the same now when i went in 95 i noticed something weird and i called my mother and the rehab place where i worked in i said everybody i know here's like me and then by the first paralympics there was five out of the 12 members on the track team there were two phds and five master's degrees and everybody was either in school or had a job and as I went through all the Paralympics, you started seeing these amazing accomplishments, and they had nothing to do with sport. They had to do with accomplishments in life. And right. you get, by, by training and competing, whether you're the best or not, you build up your ability to compete and train in the rest of your life. As a matter of fact, some of the people that work with the Olympians after they retire, and the Paralympians said the Paralympians do much better in their careers doing the training and afterwards. A lot of them don't know what to do when they finish. The Olympians the one that make the team or don't make get a medal when their careers are over there. They have trouble changing, transitioning to a life while most of the people that have disabilities have been mostly working their way through it. And when they finish, they just move all that energy into another field. So mm -hmm. that's what, to me, the Paralympics is about. We're competing in sport, but it also makes you compete in life. Sounds like a winner. Sounds like a winner. For anyone listening that might be in situations in life itself, as we've talked about, but are uncertain as to what direction to go in, might be having second thoughts, what would you say to them at this point? It might seem bad now, 
but there is a way out. I mean, one thing I noticed uh, when I was at one of the Paralympics was how casual the people were about how they got to where they were. Like one of the guys, one lady, and these are the people, because when you're in the in group, you can say what you want to. One woman in a wheelchair, she's talking to a guy, he's an amputee. She's like, so how'd you become a gimp? <laughs> he's laughing. He said, doing stupid stuff. He was an active duty military uh, person right then. Uh, everybody had a story. But all of them had a story where something was bad. No, even if it was a disappeared, there was something that was bad. And they got past it. And so we like to say, if you can get over that hump, you can get where you're going. Just get over the hump. It will get better. You might, it might take a while. You might, it might even get worse. But at the end of the tunnel, there really is a beautiful light. And a lot of it is uh, keeping going through it. And most of all, talk to people. There's someone that will talk to you. There's someone that's similar, someone that knows someone. And there's, there's organizations. There's people here. There's people there. One of my friends that's retired right now, he had trouble getting his family to the Paralympics when he finally made it in 2004 after some of the worst thing happened. He had just had the worst luck when a, uh, he lost his tethering line and his guide runner lost him. He would have made the Paralympic team, but the tethering line broke and he ran into a fence broke his ribs and didn't make the Paralympic team. He made it four years later. He didn't have the money to bring his family. I told him, tell your, tell your story. You have a phenomenal story. And he told his story, and he raised like $12,000 in two weeks. Because I said, <laughs> you have a story. Everyone here has a story. And literally, everybody has a story. They don't have to be at the top of the, their game. or The game they think it is, someone has a story, and there's somebody willing to listen, and someone that will, quote-unquote, listen and help. So... You have to be willing to, 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 to open yourself up to having those rewards. As my mother, who was a Methodist minister said, minister said, you have to be willing to accept your blessings. But in order to get your blessings, sometimes you have to let someone know you need to be blessed. And Vincent has had such a diverse work history. So he's successful in what he's done in terms of working. He's continuing to work, right, Vince? You're not oh. retiring anytime soon, are you? Uh, I intend to die at my desk, whether it's at the office or at home, so I don't really have any problem with that. And one of my motivating factors, I tell people, I have a severe acute allergy to poverty. I tried it on right when I graduated, and it really didn't look good, so I have a tendency to work hard. And I learned this from my parents. Uh, hard work usually leads to more hard work, but if you do it correctly and work smarter, you can lead yourself to some, some pretty good accolades. My parents met when they were uh, 18 and 19, married when they were 19 and 20. Neither one had running water in their homes in 1960. Worked their way into a housing project, worked their way into renting a house. My dad got on with Ford. My mom went to secretarial school, but they, they worked hard together. They started saving money for us to go to college when we were young. They bought an encyclopedia. But we saw that work ethic, and when I started to go blind, they didn't quote unquote baby me and they were like this is going to be rough but we'll get through it and my mother passed away in 2017 and my dad passed away last year but those two people from rural georgia mom was valedictorian there was no money to go to school in the late 50s and dad had eighth grade education they left us three children out of the four children we have 11 degrees out of three kids and they left us four paid for homes so we had a great uh, role model, but they didn't just help us, they helped other people. It was like, 
people all over the community continuously help send a cousin of mine to college she's now got a master's degree and she teaches uh she's the head of her math department at her school and she was a person that was a teenage mother so it's a possibility and if you have a setback that's just a setback as my mother said you figured out how not to do it now let's figure out how to do it so i like that i like that is there anything else you want to add before we wrap up this is a saying that i tell people and it is really 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 important you know people always talk about it's who you know or you need to network but what does that actually mean and who you know is not always exactly what you need I say you need to really pay more attention to it this way. It's not who you know or what you know. It's who knows that you know what you know. You have a skill set. Someone needs a skill set. The conduit between that is the problem. This is why you have to figure out what you're looking for and who has the information or who has the conduit for that person. Conduit. I am naturally a very shy and introverted version person. Losing my vision has required me as a blind person to reach out and interact in order to get information. So I, I mean, I've got an ex-wife. She said the thing that made her, well, we were in downtown once and the trains got locked up because there was a fire on the tracks. And she and her boss took a cab past that up to North Atlanta. And I was waiting downtown. It took two hours before we could get the tracks cleared. When she picked me up at the train station two and a half hours later, she said, how you doing? I said, I'm doing fine. I got out of the car. I got in the car. I reached in my pocket. I had three business cards. <laughs> She's like, I should have known. And I said, opportunity. It's always opportunity. an opportunity. Okay. <laughs> always an opportunity. Yes. Well, Vincent, I want to thank you so much for being a guest on Boundless. And my friend, you truly are Boundless. Thank you. My pleasure. The end of this episode of OLWJ Captivation has come. For you to become more involved in what I do, visit my website at www.olwjboundless.com. Here you can read my blog or subscribe to the mailing list. Also, follow me on Twitter at OLWJBoundless. Follow me on Instagram at O underscore Wilson underscore Jr. Les Brown once said, it's okay to fail. Because if you land on your back, that means that you can look up and then get up. Until next time, my friends, take care.